be great if you open back up to that reading that we had first, the 1 Corinthians 7 passage that we're going to be dealing with tonight. But as you do it, as you turn over there, it's uh, important that we pray and ask for God's help as we look at this part of his word. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is eternal uh, and we pray that you might use it to speak to our situation tonight. Uh, Father, may, uh, as we hear your word, may we see your goodness and your love for us uh, and may you both challenge and comfort us to live in ways that please you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Natalie Bennett is a British journalist. She suggested a few years ago that marriage, at least as we understand it, is outmoded. Uh, that the until death do we part bit uh, now has a very different meaning to a hundred or, or even a thousand years ago. Um, she notes that the current length of marriage in the UK is 11 and a half years, uh, which she says, given the mortality rate of bygone era, uh, is pretty much what they meant when they said till death do you part. Um, and she goes on and she cites some other things like how wealthy couples in previous centuries would, would often live apart uh, as one holidayed in the country and the other was still working in the city. Uh, eventually she concludes that marriage should be a five-year contract uh, with options at the end of it to either renew or to walk away. And now you can question uh, her maths, you could question perhaps her history You might even ask whether she started with her conclusion and then worked backwards to find the evidence. But she certainly captures the spirit of our transitional age. Commentators speak these days of Generation Y as the options generation. If you're a rugby league enthusiast and even if you're not, uh, rugby league circles at the moment are abuzz with early season coaching transfers and complaints that loyalty now has been lost, your word means nothing, which seems to reflect a perception about the modern workplace and a perception about modern relationships. Today marriage is at a 100 year low, a quarter of young people will never marry and those who do, 46% of which will end up in divorce. In work, many say that the end of the third year is an ideal time to change to a new role uh, within either the same organisation or to find a new employer. Uh, Some HR expert was quoted saying, if you're in a job for more than three years, that's considered a long time these days. And it's that cultural backdrop that we sit in that we read the words of Paul saying, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. And this is the rule in verse 17, I lay down in all the churches. He is laying down a certain challenge to be constant in an age of transition and movement. But before we go too far, we need to ask that question, don't we, of what exactly is he challenging us to? We pick up this evening uh, a section that we circled around last week in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, 7 verse 1 set the tone uh, in a more literal translation. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, Holy sexuality is what is at stake in this chapter. Uh, But holy sex is not one size fits all, uh, but something that each one of us must do in the state that you are already in when God called you. 
So last week we saw the goodness of marriage and sex as well as the goodness of singleness and no sex. Uh, Paul calls all Christians to use their sexuality to glorify God um, as either single or married. Uh, For the gospel transforms the way that you act but it doesn't change the state you're in. Uh, It's the principle at the centre of this chapter, uh, the principle of being godly whatever your situation So have a look again at at 7 verse 17 and following. Uh, Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Uh, Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He shouldn't become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he was a slave when he was called by the Lord as the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he was a free man when he was called as Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, Each man is responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. The point is simple enough. Um, While becoming a Christian transforms you to become holy in Jesus, it doesn't actually affect your external situation, your state. The gospel transforms you, not your situation. Uh, And we see that it's a principle that can be covering broad areas by the way that he uses slavery in verse 21. Uh, He's not just talking about sex and relationships. Uh, If we play with the slavery image a little, uh, were you a lawyer when you were called to be a Christian? Well, that's fine, you stay a lawyer. Uh, But a lawyer who in verse 19 keeps the commands of God. It's your holiness, it's your obedience to God that matters, not the state that you're in. Uh, And when we read this at first, uh, perhaps the offence doesn't quite hit you in the face the way it should. You see, all of us just instinctively tie our identity profoundly to what we do uh, and who we're connected to. So, so often it's, it's actually our state, our situation that we draw our worth from. Uh, we meet new people. Imagine yourself there at the party, you've just been introduced to someone else. What do you go and do? Well, you want to find out what do they do. Uh, you need to find out um, who, who are they in relationship with, who are they connected to, uh, where do they live as well, that's nice to insert. What we want to try and do is, is establish their status compared to our status. And becoming a Christian actually doesn't touch on any of those things. It doesn't change any of those things. Even though you're actually profoundly changed from death to life. The most significant change happens in you when you become a Christian and yet it doesn't touch on your state. In essence, Paul is saying your status doesn't really matter. And for a religiously concerned audience, which is who Paul was writing to originally in Corinth, uh, Paul undercuts the most significant marker for them. He attacks circumcision. Uh, Circumcision was a physical sign that you were religiously connected to the true God, that you had a share in the promises of God. And Paul says even that status is irrelevant. Verse 17, again verse 20, again verse 24 Uh, Whatever the situation you're in when you were called, just stay in it. 
Now, I think that's both a challenge and a comfort, isn't it? Uh, if you're someone who draws your worth, who draws your esteem from your career uh, or from your relationships, then it's a warning, a warning that you've overvalued your situation, that you've invested too much into your status uh, and you're setting yourself up eventually for heartache. The relief though, the comfort for us all, is that God doesn't care about the world's standards. He doesn't care about the status markers that everyone else is obsessed with. Instead, he bought you an inexpensive price. Not so that you'd be a self-sufficient winner, but that you would become a faithful servant of his. The gospel transforms you. It doesn't change your state. What matters is being godly in whatever situation you're called to. Uh, Yeah, it's not always a sin to change. Uh, Godliness is not the same as staying in one job for all your life. So in verse 21, uh, Paul recommends a Christian slave, if there's an opportunity to get out of slavery, take it. Uh, But that's that change of state. That's not a gospel requirement. Holiness, keeping God's commands, that is what is required of a Christian person, someone who knows and has been bought by Jesus. Let's take that principle now. And let's put it back into that context of chapter 7 and the concern for holy sex. And we're going to look at the case in point tonight of marriage. So go back with me to verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does... She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. Last week we explored that singleness and no sex is good Uh, and so too is marriage and sex. And Paul's instruction here is to married couples and it's really, really simple. Stay married. Uh, He even alludes to the Lord Jesus' own teaching when he says it's not I but the Lord. He's actually alluding to a quote of something Jesus said and we have recorded in Mark 10 and Matthew 19. Um, There Jesus is denouncing the easy divorce rules that have become commonplace in his day and times. Uh, And it seems fairly pertinent to us who live now post-1975 with the the no-fault divorce enshrined in our laws. Uh, Paul's point is simply stay married. Simple to say, often the reality can be harder to live out. Even in good marriages, I'd want to suggest that the greatest and most painful conflict that you will ever experience is probably going to be with your spouse, the person you love most dearly. That's even in a good marriage. But Christians are to be godly in the state in which they are in. We are not to be the people who seek a marriage's end. If I can compare divorce to a simple car crash, uh, there are three stages to a crash. Uh, There's the moments before, there's the crash itself and then there's the aftermath. Uh, Now, I'm sorry if it's uh, a pain for you to use such a graphic image, but divorce, um, even divorce from terrible marriages, is still tragic. Now, I want to say you can speak of divorce, as you can speak of a car crash, in two ways. One is with proactive language, Uh, that is, deliberately crashing the car. The other is recognitional language, noticing that car crash has already happened. 
So, proactive divorce is crashing the car. Recognitional divorce, noticing the car has crashed. Proactive divorce is a set of actions to bring about a future state, i.e. the death of a marriage. Recognitional divorce is a reaction to a state that has already occurred. Proactive divorce is itself a sin. Recognitional divorce is the consequence of past sin. Proactive divorce, I want to say, is like an execution warrant. Uh, It puts a bad marriage to death. Recognitional divorce is like a death certificate. It's not issued until after the death has already occurred. In Jesus' day, people were handing out execution-style warrants or certificates for divorce. They were proactive divorces. And Paul, in line with Jesus, quoting Jesus, is saying that Christians are not to proactively separate. They are to remain married. Uh, The state that you were called in, you are to remain serving Jesus in and you are to keep his commands there. Is it ever okay to deliberately crash a car? We need to think about marriage in the same way. Don't seek a divorce. Don't seek for a marriage to fail. Uh, To to pray for your husband to commit adultery so that you can go and divorce and remarry uh, is missing entirely Jesus' point and Paul's point. Uh, Amazing as it may sound, even after something as tragic as adultery, you don't have to divorce. Uh, All married couples uh, here tonight need to work at their marriage. Uh, You need to articulate your expectations. You need to make it clear to each other. You beware thinking that avoiding conflict is necessarily godliness. Uh, If all avoiding conflict is doing is producing deep-seated resentment or emotional detachment and distancing, that's not godly. Uh, We need to work at our marriages, read helpful practical books to strengthen them, go to enrichment courses to strengthen your marriage. Uh, We have to keep communication up. We can't wait until things are dire in marriage to come and deal with it. Often by that stage it's too late. But I want to say if we're going to take Hebrews 13.4 seriously which talks about marriage being honoured by all then this isn't just a word for married people. It's the responsibility of all of us to care for each other. I've heard it said after some divorces yeah, I'm not really surprised, I saw the signs months ago. I've even thought myself of some people with the wisdom of hindsight, yeah, I can see how that happened and oh yeah, there were those signs and I want to say that's not good enough on our behalf. That's not good enough. We actually need to develop a culture where if we're worried about another couple's marriage that we speak to them about it. And if you're married and someone actually comes to you and says as much, whether they're married or single or whatever, don't be defensive. Um, Be really gracious about it. Be thankful that there's someone who cares enough for you to do you good, even when it's difficult. We are marriage remainers, not proactive divorces. But sometimes it happens. Verse 11, reluctant permission is given. And that's in keeping with the rest of the Bible's teaching. That because our hearts are sinful and we all sin in different ways, God reluctantly gives permission for divorce to occur. Where it happens, 
Verse 11 instructs us to seek reconciliation and restoration. Uh, Even in light of divorce, the principle, the desire to to remain married, to seek peace, uh, it stands firm. Uh, There's still, though, the matter of recognitional divorce. Uh, It's addressed in part by verse 12 and and following, 12 through to 16, uh, which I want to say is a strange section. Perhaps you found it strange when we just read it a moment ago. Uh, It's particularly strange if you don't share Paul's assumptions about holy sex. Uh, Assumptions that I think are fairly countercultural. The first assumption that Paul has that we need to grasp if we get this is that sex is bigger and more profound than our society actually thinks. Yeah, our society is obsessed with sex and sexuality. Uh, Yep, every form of media is overrun by sexual imagery and notions. But it's a cheapened view of sex much, much cheaper than what the Bible suggests. The overexposure of sex in mainstream thinking doesn't actually make sex bigger or better or more important or more profound, rather it's a devalued currency. It was once explained to me that the Bible's view of sex is like a Porsche rather than a Datsun. Uh, If you can work with me on another car analogy. Uh, If I owned a Porsche rather than owning my gold Tarago, uh, which I actually have, um, I would treat it with care. I would be particularly wary of how it was used and who drove it and what happened to it. If I owned a Datsun or uh, still had the Commodore that we once sold for under $200, uh, if I still had that car, well, who cares who drove it? You know, what's it matter? Who cares where it goes? To? I don't care what they do with it. You can't really damage it much more than, you know, less than $200 is worth. Uh, and the Bible's view of sex is that it's like a Porsche. It's to be handled with care. It's to be used well and appropriately. And our society sees sex as a Datsun or my old Commodore. Now, the language of Genesis 2, which was also read for us earlier, is the language of one flesh. Uh, a man and a woman establish a new public exclusive relationship and sex there is described as no ordinary occurrence. Uh, Genesis ties it to a profound unity where, where two separate beings are in, one, in, in some sense coming together and becoming one. Uh, sex is, is not merely a bodily function but it intimately affects a person's being. As Paul pointed out in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, sexual sin is of a different order to other sins because in sex you are you're actually uniting to another person. It is affecting you more than just on the outside. It is affecting your whole person and their whole person. Uh, Sex is a a profound gift and therefore it is to be valued highly and used properly. That is, in the context of lifelong marriage. Lifelong, exclusive, public relationship between a man and a woman. Uh, Now let me say, if you're single and and hearing this, don't be tempted to think you're missing out uh, any more than a married person is missing out on some of the blessings and freedoms that a single person has. And we spoke about that last week. Uh, as Paul said last week, marriage and sex is good, uh, singleness and no sex is good. In the Bible's view, the only people who are missing out are those who misuse sex, those who treat it like a Datsun, those having sex outside the marriage covenant. Okay, so that's assumption one. Sex is more profound than you think. Uh, the second assumption is that holy living is more important than you can imagine. Now, Christians who know the truth uh, that you know, we can't be saved by doing good works, that, 
that no one this side of heaven can live perfectly, that you know, grace steps in and saves us. Christians like that can be tempted into falling into the trap that thinking, oh, therefore actions don't matter. And we can console ourselves with kind of sayings that the world might use, like, oh, it's the thought that counts. Well, actually, the thought isn't enough. God considers our unholy actions so serious that they demand death and eternal separation. Paul uses a repeated phrase in 6 verse 20, you were bought at a price, therefore honour God with your body. He uses it again in 7.23 to get across the same point. Uh, You are not your own, you were bought with a price. We celebrated Easter just a fortnight ago. Uh, Jesus Christ was abandoned by man and friend because unholy actions matter. He was beaten and whipped and he was mocked because unholy actions matter. He hung on a cross in agony because unholy actions matter. You were bought at a price, the one and only son's life. Those two assumptions we need to have about holy sex. Sex is more profound than you think and holiness is more important than you can imagine. And now we read again what Paul addresses in verse 12 and following. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your your children would be unclean, but as it is they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Remember, at the end of chapter 6, he has spoken about how Christians shouldn't sleep with a prostitute. Uh, and it's more than just sex at stake at the end of chapter 6. Prostitutes were connected to idol worship. Uh, you didn't go to a brothel to visit a prostitute, you went to a local temple. And because a Christian person is a temple of the Holy Spirit, God lives within them to engage in the the two becoming one act of sex with an unholy idol worshipper was completely inappropriate. Given what he said there, if if you were a Christian married to a non-Christian and if you shared some of Paul's assumptions about the profundity of sex and the importance of holiness, then you might be wondering, maybe I should stop having sex with my unholy partner. After all, you know, sex is profoundly uniting. Uh, And they're unholy, and the the divide between holiness and unholiness is, is not a matter of inches, but it's a yawning chasm. But Paul here applies the principle, be godly in the state in which God called you. Uh, The assumption, of course, here is that um, the person was already married when they became a Christian, when they got converted. Uh, verse 16 gives no certainty to missionary dating, going out with someone to try and convert them. Uh, and further to that, uh, Paul can't forbid uh, all Christians from marrying non-Christians because uh, in those days uh, you were married at your father's discretion and his decision. So the virgin girl that he goes on to speak about in chapter 7 uh, may be converted but a father may not and he might marry her off to another unbeliever and God is not going to call sin what she had no choice in. But the widow in verse 40, 
the woman who actually has a choice of marriage partner must marry a fellow believer. Uh, It's inconceivable to scriptural thinking that a Christian would choose to marry an unbeliever. But for those who are already married and then converted, is their use of sex contaminated now? Should they they leave for holiness sake? Would they be more, more godly? Well, no, says Paul, stay married. In many ways, your marriage will be harder if that's your situation. Uh, there are more complications. How, how you spend your time and your money. You know, when one person's a believer and the other isn't, one wants to be at church every week and give money to gospel causes and the other naturally doesn't. Uh, and that's going to lead to friction and that's going to be hard. Uh, on top of that, you're going to have the sadness and the grief of not sharing your most important relationship with Jesus with your most important human relationship. But that's not a reason to leave. They are considered to be holy, your unbelieving partner and children. That is, they're acceptable for you to be in close relationship with. Now, it's not the same as being saved, verse 16 points out. But there's no reason to leave. You are not in a place to proactively divorce. They may leave you though. And there is a place for recognising that they have left you. It's a language of willingness. You notice in verse 12 and 13, the language of willing keeps coming up. It's not okay to divorce your unbelieving spouse if they're willing to stay. Because marriage is, marriage is a partnership of willing consent. And if one partner has taken that willing consent away, then the marriage has ceased. And the Christians aren't the ones to take away their willing consent, but if an unbelieving partner takes away their willing consent, the Christian is left to merely recognise the fact they've gone. Even then the encouragement in verse 16 is to seek peace. We may still need to concede a divorce. Um, Not every sin leads to divorce, but some does. So in Leviticus 21, God concedes grounds for for recognitional divorce when the husband has completely abandoned or neglected his wife. Deuteronomy 24 concedes recognitional divorce on the grounds of adultery. Divorce in our society has become normal. That that woman I quoted at the very start, Natalie Bennett, is not alone. Others have argued that given our life expectancy, we should expect to have at least three partners in our life about 20 years each as we go through different phases as adults. I want to say our society's willingness to embrace divorce so easily is not just foreign to biblical thinking, it's also anti-human because it fails to take into account the genuine emotional costs of divorce. That when two have become one and then you make them back into two again, that's going to be costly and painful. And so the Bible encourages seek reconciliation. Not every sin leads to divorce, but some does. And any divorce that we engage in is going to be a very slow process, perhaps even slower than the one year that our government allows, a year of separation before it. And even then it's going to be something we weep over and not celebrate. I remember borrowing a, a book from the library for my kids. Uh, it was about a princess uh, and a princess who at home 
Uh, the king and queen fought all the time and so they ended up building separate castles and she had a tunnel that went between the two of them and everything ended up happily where they had a huge royal party to celebrate it. Uh, it wasn't a very well-veiled story covering the modern phenomenon of divorce parties. Such an approach, I'd want to say, is not, not fitting with recognitional divorce uh, in the Bible's thinking. Divorce is something we grieve uh, and it's not something you grieve on your own but it's in the company of people who weep alongside you. Uh, we've spoken tonight of big issues, challenging issues and I suspect some painful issues for some. Uh, I know in some respects I... Uh, haven't said enough. I know there are questions in people's minds about things like remarriage uh, and they're valid, entirely valid questions. Um, I haven't addressed them for two reasons and I'm not going to. Uh, one is I don't think that's in Paul's mind here in 1 Corinthians 7 and the other is I don't want his point to be blunted. Uh, what he clearly wants is for people to stay married and to seek reconciliation. Uh, and I'm worried if we focus on the exceptions will actually unhelpfully take away from that point. But I'm also aware uh, that for some of you this kind of talk may raise painful memories of broken marriages, uh, memories that I, I haven't got an ability to tap into. Um, I hope for, if that is you, you can take some comfort in knowing that God himself uh, has endured the unfaithfulness of his people and he does have an insight into your pain. And for some of you tonight, it's we're a reminder of other people's sin. And for some, it's going to challenge you about your own sin. You may even need to repent if you proactively sought to end a marriage rather than recognising your partner had withdrawn the consent. Now, that may not, reconciliation may not be a possibility, but you may need to acknowledge the wrongdoing. Uh, and I'm aware as well there'll be some people here who are struggling in their marriages and they're finding the call to remain um, actually a hard word. And what I'm hoping is that tonight will give you some encouragement to keep going and to ask for help. But perhaps there's a bigger danger for those of us who actually don't feel the pain very acutely. Uh, it's tempting when issues like divorce or perhaps troubled marriages are touched on to be the ones who throw the first stone. Uh, we're in danger of being proud rather than seeing um, God's gracious hand in either preserving our marriages or giving us the gift of singleness. Uh, and just as I suppose we saw last week that there is no kind of second class status between married or single, um, we would be in a huge error if we started seeing people who are divorced as second class Christians. We need to make sure that grace dominates all our relationships with each other. We need, to, we need to be gracious to those who are in struggling marriages and gracious to those who have been through divorce, both the victims and the perpetrators. For we're all sinners. And yet God in his mercy has bought us with the price of his own son so that we together can struggle to keep his commands. We live in an age of transition and, and we're called to see the value of remaining but I suspect the biggest challenge is actually to be holy in whatever state we're in, in an age that doesn't recognise the great price that Jesus has paid for us. So let's pray. Lord and Father, please uh, help us to see the value of holiness and to see the cost it was for you to purchase us, that we might live lives that are pleasing to you. Father, we pray for... 
Uh, those of us here who found uh, the issues raised by this part of your word tonight a struggle. Uh, Father, may you be their comfort. And Father, may we love one another uh, deeply and from the heart uh, as we together struggle to keep your commands. Amen.